We've come to talk about, and you're going to see this evening, The Barber of Seville. It is apparently the ninth most performed opera in the world, and frankly, you can see why. It has a winning, tough-minded heroine, Rosina, with steel in her backbone, and as I've said, a mind of her own. There's an ardent aristocratic suitor, Count Almaviva, who with the help of the local barber, outwits Rosina's gruesome bar guardian, Dr. Bartolo, who is hoping to lead his ward to the altar for himself. And then, above all, there is Rossini's score, bubbling, sparkling, and scarcely pausing for breath. This quartet of characters first moved and lived north of the Alps, not in Rome, where the opera was given its first performance, uh, or Rossini's version. The libretto was carved out of the first of a trilogy of plays about Figaro by Pierre Beaumarchais that was first performed in Paris at the Comédie Française in 1775. Mozart and his librettist, Aponte, had already borrowed the second of the three plays 30 years before for their opera, The Marriage of Figaro. And frankly, Rossini's Barber was not the first opera to borrow Beaumarchais' first play about this barber. Giovanni Paisello had set the story to music for a performance in St. Petersburg in 1782. Rossini's version, as I've said, was given its premiere in Rome. It was the 20th of February, 1816. And in the audience on that first night, Paisello's supporters made very life very difficult for the performers. Some hissed and jeered throughout, and there was a trouble on stage too. Indeed, poor Don Basilio, the music teacher, tripped, cut himself, and almost broke his nose. While Manuel Garcia, who sang Count Almaviva, extemporised a serenade under Rosina's window at the very opening of the opera that wasn't what Rosina composed at all, but was based on a series of Spanish love songs. It was, I suspect, the use of the basso buffo, the comic bass, that Paisello's supporters in the audience particularly disliked. So, Dr. Bartolo and the music teacher, Don Basilio. But all was forgiven, reasonably, by the second performance, and The Barber of Seville went on to become, well, the ninth most performed opera in the world. We've a quartet of guests with us this evening to explore Rossini's opera. Samantha Price, the mezzo-soprano who's covering the role of Rosina, will be sharing her ideas about Rossini's heroine, and we're also joined by Andrew Smith, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and they'll be performing music from the opera. With us also, Catherine Wilde, who's worked on this revival of an original production by Jonathan Miller for English National Opera, and our first guest is the distinguished Rossini scholar, Richard Osborne. Will you please welcome Richard Osborne? Richard, was it really uh, Paisello's supporters uh, uh, that offended that first night audience? Yes, absolutely. It was, uh, you explained it perfectly just now. Um, and um, they made a hell of a, a fuss. Um, they, I think they had anticipated there was going to be difficulty. And they, uh, the very wealthy uh, uh, intendant of the theatre hadn't wanted to do the barber. Rossini wanted to do it desperately. And they had actually, because of the Pazzaro president, and they had actually printed in the programme a, a sort of legal disclaimer. This is not, this is not plagiarism. This is a new opera, and it, we, we, we admire Pazzaro, blah, 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 blah. It had no effect whatsoever, because the clack was in, and they disrupted the performance. As you say, the second performance, which Rossini, he should have been directing from the harpsichord, from the forte piano, he didn't appear. 
he he uh, stayed in bed at home. Uh, <laughs> there was a it was a success. There was a torchlight possession to his house. He thought they were coming to to get him, um, and uh, ran into the outhouses at the back of the hotel. But he was persuaded to to go back to the third performance. And when he got back to Naples at the end of the month, which was his 24th birthday on the 29th of April, 1816, uh, he wrote a nice letter to his mother saying, well, it's, it's turned out quite well after all, and it had been a success. We don't have opera first like, like, like anymore, do we, alas? Well, I don't know. <laughs> he was hoping. <laughs> well, they were marches with torches. Brasini um, is supposed to have written the work in under three weeks. Do you think that's really true? Yes, I mean, the, 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 um, the schedule was this. Rossini had recently gone to Naples. He had had a very successful career in the north of Italy, become a superstar, and was signed by the Royal Theatres in Naples in 1815, which is the equivalent of being signed by uh, Real Madrid for a hundred million. I mean, he was a, a really very hot property indeed. He had to do an opera, two operas a year for Naples, serious operas, with a, with a, a very fine company, and he did the first one, Elisabetta Regina d'Inghilterra, about Elizabeth I, and that had, that had opened in October. He then went to, uh, to Rome, where he, had, he was allowed in, over the winter to work for whoever he wanted. And he went to Rome to do a, a, an escape opera called Torvaldo Idolisco, which was a sort of semi-seri opera, which wasn't, very, wasn't much of a success. But he went to Rome in middle of November. That was put on uh, on the 28th of December in another theatre in Rome. And then uh, Sforza Cesarini, with this very grand theatre, the Argentina, which was, a, which was the best equipped and plushest theatre in Rome, wanted something for the end of the carnival season. And um, there was clearly a big row, with, with Rossini and Stabini saying, we're going to do the barber. And Sforza Cesarini, say, Cesarini saying, uh, over my dead body, because it's going to cost me. And, um, they prevailed, and the contract for the libretto was, was signed on the 16th of January. The date was crossed out, and it was put back to the 20th. Sterbini was living with Rossini and with Zamboni, who was going to create the Road of Figaro, and they worked together for a month, and the thing uh, was put on on the 20th of February. Now, the interesting th thing about all this is that... Um, um, I've got a little quotation, actually, just one sentence, which I can't remember, so I'm going to read it from... Um, a remark by Verdi about this, and he's talking about Handel and Mozart and Rossini. He says, As, um, Israel in Egypt, 15 days. Don Giovanni, written in a month. The Barber, in 18 days. Well, it's probably nearer five weeks, four weeks. Those men did not have exhausted blood, said Verdi, were well-balanced natures, had their heads on squarely, and they knew what they wanted. So this was not unusual. But that last sentence, they knew what they wanted, I think is very interesting, because Rossini was determined to do the barber, and he'd obviously been thinking about it for years. Do you, I mean, is there any evidence that he knew the text well prior to the whole question of it being performed at the New Theatre of the Argentina in Rome? He knew, he knew the opera very well, because he had been in the theatre since about... He's four or five years old, and he had acted as a repetitor during his teenage years and a harpsichord 40 piano player in the theatres. And um, he would have known that score inside out. Uh, so he and Stabini then stripped it back, like a mechanic taking a car to bits and, re and reassembling it, and, 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 and 
did their own version of the libretto which had been used by, by uh, Paisiello. Uh, so, um, but he, he knew the opera. And you know, it's a little bit like a cat playing with a mouse because you can, if you compare the two operas, you can just see Rossini time and again just blowing <laughs> Paisiello out of the water. Interestingly, there's a very wonderful scene. Uh, in the Beaumarchais play, Dr. Bartolo has two servants. Uh, wakeful and uh, uh, I forgot what the other one's called, uh, doleful or something. Uh, but one is always yawning and the other's always sneezing. And Paisiello writes a wonderful trio yeah. for Bartolo with the sneezing and the yawning. Rossini doesn't touch that. Uh, yeah. That's not in his libretto. He's not going to compete. He knows he can't win that one. <laughs> but, but that was the only number he couldn't win on, I think. Would, would the play, of course, all three plays, had caused something of a scandal in France? And we know, mm. for example, that Marie Antoinette had to lean fairly hard on Louis XVI mm. to get them performed because Louis felt that this was kind of dangerous material politically, servants mm. taking over mm. from mm. masters. Do you think this would have appealed to Rossini, the radical politics in it? The very reverse, actually. Rossini's, well, Rossini was born in 1792. His father was a keen Republican. And when his father was a horn player and a teacher at the Bologna Academy, when the French invaded Pesaro, which was Rossini's birthplace, in 1797, uh, old Vivazzo, as he was known, uh, was out flying the, the trickle or whatever it was. Unfortunately, the Austrians came back in 1800-1801. Uh, Rossini's father was arrested and put in prison which is why his mother, who had a decent voice but wasn't a trained singer, went on the stage singing seconda donna roles in, in, in local theatres. And the young Rossini travelled round with her, so he was like a kid whose, whose mother's a circus performer. He, he got to know the thing at first hand. But he always... I think he was very distressed by civil unrest. Uh, he avoided the, the uh, conscription in 1812 when he would be due to, to join the Italian army, uh, or whatever province it was, uh, and um, because he had had a smash hit in, in Milan, La Pietra del Paragone, and the local commander excused him. Otherwise, he could have been, on, he could have been in Moscow, where you know, 1812 wasn't a good year to be in the army. Uh, and um, particularly if you weren't on the pole, you know, whichever side you're on. But, and then later in life, uh, he got caught up in the 1848 revolution. He was thought to be, a, by that time, a, you know, a, a, a rich uh, uh, bourgeois. Uh, and he, all his life, he was a conservative with a small and a capital C. He was a little bit like Richard Strauss. He didn't want to get involved in politics. And so I, I think his approach to the Beaumarchais would have been completely unpolitical. <laughs> He inherits the comic opera form, opera buffer. Yeah. What kind of changes do you see him making to this form, say, in uh, the marriage of, in the, of the Barbara Seville? Well, basically, Rossini invents 19th century Italian opera from, from scratch. What he does is he brings, at the age of 18, his first opera, one act operas in Venice. What he does, he has. He has, his education has been, he's, been, he's had access to, to music libraries in Bologna and in, in Lugo of rich families, and they have all the latest music. They have Mozart, they have Haydn, they have Beethoven. And Rossini, he knew the major figure. He knew how that was put together and the more marvelous formal structures uh, uh, Mozart had used. 
But his great educator was the Haydn String Quartets, which he persuaded some of his friends to join him to play. And the Haydn String Quartets are in, in classical form. They have energy. They have wit. They have dramatic surprise. And what he did was to, to instantly bring the form. He, he had a sort of one-act form. The first act of the Barbara Seville lasts about 80 minutes. And these one-act operas lasted about 80 minutes. And there was an overture. There was an ensemble introducing one or two of the characters, and there'll be an aria, a duet. In the middle, there'll be a sort of trio, a sort of crisis, and then there'll be another aria, whatever. And then you get the, this big finale, like the Act One finale in Figaro, which that would end uh, in, in Barber. And that, that would end the, uh, the, the, the entire opera in these one act pieces. And he, so he had that template, which he then used in all operas. But then he did another thing. He did something really quite radical. He took the musical forms and the vocal forms of opera seria, of serious opera, and opera buffa, and used them interchangeably. So the, the, the serious operas were suddenly given a terrific lift because they had these great rhythmic impetus and then, and then these finales, which really gathered to a, a wonderful dramatic point, which was from opera buffa. For opera buffa, what he did was to, to take the expressive power, particularly of the, for the women's voices, uh, but for all the voices, in fact, uh, of, of opresaria and also the, uh, the, the, the wonderful uh, fioritura, the wonderful elaborations, and, uh, and use it. So the role of Rosina actually uses phrases which had appeared in Elisabetta the previous autumn. Now, Rosina is a girl in love. She's um, got... Uh, uh, she's, she's semi-imprisoned, uh, but she's got a terrific spark, and she's going to get around where, as we hear in, in, in Virtual Pogofar, her entrance aria. Much the same as Elizabeth, except you know, the, the, the context is different. But uh, bringing the music of Elizabeth, or uh, that kind of serious music, to bear on a character like Rosina gives a depth and a punch to it, which is quite remarkable. And this was probably the biggest thing he did. And, of course, everybody else followed. I mean, as I say, he, he reinvented Italian opera. You, you've said that you think the best jokes in Rossini are, in fact, musical jokes. Is this what you mean? This, this, this kind of hybridity in which he takes the tradition of opera serious, serious, tragic yeah. opera, and adds it to comedy? Or are there other kinds of musical yeah, I mean, jokes? That, that remark is, is, is a little bit misleading, because actually um, what he does, going back to the Haydn thing, I, I can give you two examples, one from uh, the Barber, the other from L'Italiana, the Italian girl in Algiers. Um, he... Audiences, I don't think necessarily, we in the audience don't necessarily realise that, that there, is a, there is a formal joke going on. But what happens, for instance, in uh, Dr. Bartolo's aria, at the end, towards the end of Act One, just before the drunken soldier appears and everything falls apart, he ironically has this scene where he says, I'm Dr. Bartolo, it's a wonderfully strutting piece. And, um, but it's in sonata form. Exposition, first subject, second subject, development, <laughs> uh, recapitulation, and this wonderful fast pattern encoder. But what the recapitulation does is, when he gets the recapitulation, he starts off, I'm the doctor, blah, blah, blah. And when you get the recapitulation, it makes him seem even more pompous because he, sa he says the same thing over again. You know, it's like the boar who's, who's already told you how important he is. And then he says, well, I don't realize I'm, I'm. And, But then another thing happened in, in the Italian girl, there's a duet between Isabella and she's got an admirer, uh, a rather sort of hangdog fellow uh, called Taddeo. And they have a duet, little Haydn-esque introduction. Then... Uh, she starts the first first uh, uh, very uh, fluent, rather cheeky vocal line. He repeats it. It then becomes a development, 
And in the middle of the, they start arguing in the course of the development, she has enough and she suddenly, we get the recapitulation again. And, and, and all it is, in, in, the effect is, as I was saying, because you're going back to the same thing. Now, the audience don't have to know that, 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 that this is sonata form practice, but you get the sense. And I think there's a better, one third example, which I think is even better, but I think the audience, you, you do get it, is at the end of, 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 of the Barbara Sphere. Why do we call it figure all the time? Well, the it's because figure is in our mind <laughs> yeah. always. Uh, the, the Barbara, at the end of the Barbara Seville, uh, after the storm, the, the, uh, Figaro has the good news that the, the, the lovers are going to elope, and he's set it all up, and there's a, there's, a, there's a ladder at the window, and they are overjoyed, and they start what is effectively a love duet. And, um, and we are listening to this love duet, and Figaro is getting more and more impatient. He starts it m m mocking them, uh, thinking this is rather silly, and then he says, and mind hurry up, go on. And... Uh, Rossini is actually going to see this throughout formally. This love duet is going to have an introduction, a slow central section, and a cabaletta, a quick final end. And I think in the audience, you're thinking, oh, well, perhaps they ought to stop now, you know. And then suddenly a, a, a lantern appears at the window, and they say, oh, my God, yes. And so they then go straight into the, into the cabaletta, uh, zito, zito, piano, piano, which is a ter terrific end to the piece. But, of course, by this is too late, because whilst they're singing that, the ladder is taken away from the window. So, so there is this sense that... Um, I think what he's doing is using a very standard form to transform a dramatic situation. I think in that case, the audience probably shares this sense of why are, why are we waiting? But God, this music's so beautiful. I don't want it to stop, so you've got this sort of tension. Richard, thank you very much. You stay with us, yeah. because I'm sure there'll be more things to talk about. Um, well, we're joined now by our second guest, the mezzo-soprano, Samantha Price, who's covering the role of Racina. And also with us, Andrew Smith, a member of the music staff here at English National Opera. Will you welcome Samantha and Andrew? Samantha, just tell us what you're going to sing for us before we make you talk to your supper too. I'm going to sing In My Heart a Gentle Voice, otherwise known as Una Voce Poco Fa, which is Rosina's first aria. Oh, 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 
Samantha, celebrating Lindora, who is, of course, really Count Almaviva, pretending to be the student Lindora, um, that's perhaps the one Rossini aria that everybody knows. Mm -hmm. It's the sort of... What makes it so special for you? Oh, well, I have to put a massive disclaimer on this to start with, because this is my first experience in the role of this opera or everything, so it's all very much first-hand opinions that um, I don't claim to know anything, but I feel a lot. Um, so I... For me, I'd say, you know, it, it's almost the, the revered stone in the crown jewels that the whole opera itself is such a popular one for all these brilliant arias that come up in duets and ensembles. And, you know, this one in particular is Rosina's first moment, really, that you get to see her. And it, it's definitely a moment she takes to shine and show you the character straight away that she's got this feistiness within her. There's a real toughness about yes, it. That word, sure. but and you wonderfully wagged your finger three <laughs> times. You know, nobody's getting one across her, are they? No. She doesn't want them to, anyway, you know. She always tries to get one up over Bartolo and is trying to stay one step ahead of Figaro as well. And, 
he sometimes gets ahead of her as well slightly, but she definitely knows her own mind, for sure. What is it, as you think about this, Karen, and you're preparing to sing it, that makes her so interesting to think into? I think she's just multidimensional, that you can tell straight away there are so many sides to her and facets that she, she knows how to play the game with Bartolo, that she, she says in the aria, you know, I can be innocent, I can be, be demure and sweet if that is what serves her purpose. Um, but as soon as someone will be getting in the way of what she wants, she has no, you know, bearings about playing those tricks and doing what she feels she has to to get what she wants. Is she a rebel? Yeah. I mean, is that the essence of her, that, she, that she's always mm. been rebellious? Or is she simply rebellious because she finds herself in a situation in what she really wants, that Dora is mm. being denied her? Well, I mean, i got to sympathise with this girl that if she's been imprisoned for most of her life, you know, and been... He's always suspicious of everything she's doing. I think he gives her good reason to be rebellious, you know, and I wouldn't, you know, deny her wanting to fight against what the situation that she finds herself in. Yeah, we should remember, she is effectively a prisoner in Bartolet's Mm -hmm. house. Oh, definitely. He is her jailer. What's dramatically the most demanding part of the role? Um, Well, I've been talking with Catherine a bit about this and that um, from when you read through the, the libretto and the plays and things, and you, you get the, the strong sense that she is passionate and she's strong-willed, but she's also very young and she also is quite innocent and naive, and she's willing to run off with Lindoro after a few songs outside her window, you know, and promises to marry him after very, you know, she doesn't even know him, is he? he's a perfect stranger. So there is an, a naivety to her, um, and she is young, but she, she doesn't realise that herself, so you, you can't play that but you have to be aware that there is that side to her as well as the, the strong-willed, feisty character that you see. Does she entirely trust Figaro, or is he a necessary agent hmm. for her escape? I think there's a nice convenience in the situation that he can help her get what she wants, and he's happy to go along with that for his own reasons, being money, usually. Um, and so I think... I mean, she, she has very little friends I feel like she says she there's hardly anyone in the house that she can trust and he is maybe one of the few people that will be sympathetic to her situation so I mean I always like the spark of chemistry that can be on stage with between Rosina and Figaro um so I think she there's maybe an element of trust there as well yes you, you really in a sense answered my last question, which is about the extraordinary vocal challenges mm-hmm. for the role, but um, quite apart from Una Voce Poco Fa, um, what are the other major challenges for the singer who tackles this role? The role as a whole, stamina is definitely one I found uh, has been a challenge, because especially um, the last finale builds and builds and builds, and you can get very easily swept away with the excitement of it all, and, and you want to sing out as much as possible, but you also have to be aware as a singer that come the end of the interval, the very next thing you sing is the second aria. And if you've already busted get in the finale and you've got no, you have to save yourself a bit for the, the challenges still to come in the second half as well. Indeed, you've got yeah. this moment that Richard was describing, in which Figaro is trying to get you out of the window, uh-huh. and you and Alma Viva are so kind of locked <laughs> in each other's romantic arms. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that requires, in its way, a, a, an extraordinary sense of, 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 of technique to keep the timing right, to sort of be unaware of Figaro mm-hmm. um, as the ladder is. The whole kind of sense of the whole ensemble requires quite a lot from a singer at that moment. Yeah, definitely. And you have to be able to be that 
ensemble singer as well as you be able because in Una Voce Pocophile that's the opportunity to show off what you want to do and with the ornamentation and things you can suit it to what's good for your voice but you also have to pair up with with Count Almaviva and sing such you know challenging coloratura together in a way that is mutually you know beneficial. Samantha Price thank you very thank you. much indeed. Cheers. Ladies and gentlemen, our final guest is Catherine Wilde, who's directed this revival of an original production by Jonathan Miller for English Afro Opera. Will you please welcome Catherine Wilde? <laughs> Catherine, is this... You need to pull the microphone, I think, okay. a little bit towards you. Um, okay. Is this the first time that you've worked on, on The Barber? It is, yes. And I have to say, I didn't actually direct the um, revival. I've been the staff director, so I've been assisting our director, Peter. And it, it has been um, my first time working on the opera, which is fabulous because um, I came to opera quite late. I, I studied music at university, and then I fell in love with Mozart's De Ponte operas, and Marriage of Figaro was a big favourite of mine. And one of the first things I did was take my, gran my grandma to come and watch Barbara Seville, which was a, a Welsh national touring production. And... We just found it so fun, you know, and I, I, that, that at the time wasn't my experience of opera and my understanding of it. And to, to, to be entertained and to see my grandma being entertained in that way, having no musical background or anything, was such a joy. And so, yeah, so pleased to be working on it. I think there's a Damascene moment for all of us about opera. Suddenly a penny drops, a light lights, the heavens open, and we know our lives are never the same, probably. Yeah. Um, how, how radical do you think the piece is? And, I mean, Richard has suggested that Rossini himself grew more conservative in old age, but the piece, as originally written by Beaumarchais, did cause great problems. Do you think the piece can be read as a radical opera, politically? I certainly think so. I mean, you have this character, Figaro, who is, uh, is the servant, he, and, and he is dri the driving force of the drama in so many ways. He, the Count needs him. I mean, the Count says to him at the beginning, I need you, Figaro, I need your cleverness, I need your ideas and your inspiration to help me win this girl and get one over on Bartolo. And that's just wonderful, this idea that's, you know, the, the, especially at the time, I mean, the context of just after the, the Napoleonic Wars, after the French Revolution, and, and once the, the Austrian... Uh, the Austrians have come back into power and the, the, the Bourbon family have been back in power in the Italian continent. So it's ex exciting to have this character there that is so, yeah, refreshing that he can be the person that takes charge in that way. And also Rosina, I mean, we spoke a little bit with the, the fact that she's a girl and she's imprisoned and, you know, Bartolo is in control of her and to a certain extent has, has to say as to how her life turns out and how it pans out, yet she doesn't accept this. I mean, maybe she is a bit mad to go along with Lindoro after, as you said, three songs outside the window. I mean, it would have been my advice, but she goes for it. And that's, that's so refreshing to, to have that in a character. And I can only imagine at the time even, even more so. so yeah. When you're working on a revival, and this is a production that's become much loved in this house over a great many years, how free are you to, you know, shake it by the neck and, and do new things with it? How free are, are you and, and your director to change things? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, um, yeah, fascinating process, and I'm still learning. It's the second revival I've worked on, and it's just such a balance between honouring the, especially in this, I much love Jonathan Miller production that's been around, 
for so long for, ve for a very good reason and honoring that artistic intention, but at the same time honoring the singers and what they bring to it. You can't, you can't just you know, shove a, a shoe that doesn't fit onto someone's foot and, and the, a singer won't give a good performance unless they have met that some, somehow halfway. So it's about balancing the two and it, yeah, it's an interesting process. And I think you do, certainly like you were saying, you were Aria at the beginning, that's, Rosina's chance to, to shine as a character, but also as a singer. And, you know, we, you can adapt that to, to suit her. And, and all of those amazing cadenzas have to be emotionally connected to something that she believes in. So we work around the singer with that. But then you have the set pieces, the finales, with, with quite a lot of choreography and running back and forth. And that we, we, we treat that in a different way. In that you, you, so it's, in bits, there's a lot of flexibility. In other parts, there's not. So, yeah. so, since it is important to take account of the fact you have a cast who probably not sung this production before, and to start with them as singers and what they bring, rather than with what the big book tells you has always been done. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating uh, management of psychology and people in a way, um, because absolutely, I, I, I personally feel that if you're directing a singer, you should be enabling them to give their best performance. And if you just say, well, you stand here now and you move over here now, then you're, you're not honouring that role. So you have to... You have to find a way of, of meeting them halfway with the role, and that's the, the tricky bit of reviving, I think. Are, are there new bits of comic business that you've added to the show? <laughs> Some. <laughs> yes. Well, the wonderful thing about um, the cast that we work with, uh, they're fantastic, and they'll go away, and you will start in quite a, a boring way of, well, in this number, you'll, you'll sit on the chair, and then you'll stand up, and there'll be a flower, and it will all be great. And then they'll come back, and uh, they'll have thought about it, and they'll bring something, a new idea to it. And um, there was a wonderful rehearsal with Andrew Shaw, who plays Bartolo, and in the singing lesson at the beginning of Act Two, Rosina's singing beautifully, but um, Bartolo, for, for one reason or another, for, through his distaste of, distaste of the music and he, just too much um, suspicion, I guess, he, tend, he has a nap, he falls asleep. And there's a moment where he, he wakes up, and it, which is all very funny, but Peter gave um, Andrew a note to say, well, it should be one of those moments you're, you're asleep and you suddenly feel like you've fallen down a lift shaft or something like that, and you, you jolt awake and... And Andrew was like, yes, yes, okay, marvellous, very good. And he goes away. And then a few days later, back in rehearsal, there'll be a moment, which I won't give away now, you'll see it in the production tonight. But what he says when he wakes up and falls out of his chair was something that he just sprung upon us in rehearsal. And we just found it so funny. And, that, and that's the thing, you know, if you have... That these characters that people know so well and they understand what the characters need and what they want, they can they can bring so much in terms of the comedy themselves to, to have a sense of play with, with the material, which is wonderful. And, and are, there, are there points where you know the two of you working on it, you can't do things because that would not actually, uh, if that bit of business, that bit of comedy, that would not be true to the way the original production saw this piece? Yes, absolutely. And you do. It's a question you have to ask yourself quite a lot when you're, you're, you are in rehearsal. And there are jokes that have come and gone throughout the rehearsal process because they've judged, been judged not appropriate or not in keeping with the production. So absolutely, you have to have a, a mind on that. And what's interesting is the original production was, was so long ago, there's no one in the room 
anymore that worked on that original production, but somehow it's been passed on down through the generations of casts and creative teams that have worked on it to, to keep that artistic identity the same as it was for Jonathan Miller. Is, is, is there a big book that tells you what, what, I mean, the kind of the book of it? One thinks of, of Stanislavski and his celebrated accounts of all his productions. Does each of these productions have a big book that you work from? Yeah, there are many big books. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, each assistant director will, will have their version of the score. And um, from the beginning there, they've put in the score, the movements that happen, the props that come on and off, and the intentions of the characters and the reasons why they do things. And you keep a record of it, and that then gets passed down. And you, you work from that. And also, now we work um, quite often from looking at the DVD. I mean, we have a DVD of the production from 2013, and we look back to see to see what was, what was on that. So we use a combination of things. But yeah, there's a score which we take time over to keep those details in because it's such good information, not only for the next production, but for me when I'm working with Sam with the cover cast, I look at that and remember what Peter has said and pass it on, hopefully, as best as possible. Why do you think, to go back to where we really started, that this is one of the great popular operas within the repertoire? At number nine, we're told, on the current list of popular operas. What is it that, that makes it you know, one that people always want to come and see? What makes it one that's been in the repertoire at this house and with this company ever since they came here? Mm. I think it, the characters are just so wonderful. Um, they're such strong characters in their own ways. I mean, you spoke a lot about Rosina, and she's interesting in herself. The Count, I mean, he's fascinating in, in his absolute passion that... Rosina should fall in love with him for who he is, not because he has a, a grand name and a grand title. So they've all got their really interesting facets about them. And you, you sort of, even Bartolo, you kind of love at the end. And there's a moment at the end where he does just such a, he realizes how ridiculous he's being and you, you feel for him. So there's the characters. And then this, this music that just moves with such pace and ma just enables that characterization so clearly it, it's just a perfect marriage of, of the music and the drama of, uh, and the visual world that I think just works and is you watch it and you get it and you enjoy it and and I wonder if it isn't and this is really perhaps a question Richard for you too if it isn't the extraordinary energy in Rossini's mood in a sense we always think about the accelerations and the overtures mm. there's a kind of energy that drives this piece forward you're breathless at the end it's, ter it's terrific, and um, it's interesting, the opera wasn't Rossini's most popular opera in his lifetime. Uh, it was, in a way, too anarchic. Uh, a great admirer, its first great famous admirer, was Beethoven, who read it, and when Rossini went to visit Beethoven in Vienna in 1822, um, uh, and Beethoven, as he was leaving, said, Make more barbers. In other words, I didn't think much of your serious operas, but the barber is a masterpiece. And, and it's a masterpiece in the way that, I don't know, the Eighth Symphony is. It's got this terrific drive, but it, it is, and it was regarded at the time as being a bit dangerous, you know, be simply because of this almost animal energy from it. And it's also very loud. Uh, yes. In comparison to the, the Paisaello, for instance. You know. So it was, a, it was a shock to the system, and it, it it survived because, of course, it does, hasn't dated in that sense. 
we might like to ask the audience to join us. We've got the usual roving microphone. If you'd like to ask any of our guests a question, pop your hand up and we'll catch you and bring the mic. Who'd like to start? This is this wonderful English moment in which everybody looks at their feet and hopes their neighbour will ask the question. Who'd like to be brave and start? Yes, congratulations. <laughs> Beaumarchais um, wrote three plays. Has anyone done an opera of the third play? That's, I think, a question for you. No, I don't know. I, 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 no, 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 no. I, uh, we would have to look that up in Grove, I think. Um, <laughs> there, is, there is that play, um, there's Kerubin by... Is that based on the third play? Well, I wonder yeah. if that's based on the third yeah. play. This is a play by... Uh, by um, uh, uh, yes, French. No, we got mm. elderly name dropping. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But there is a play, opera called Kerma. Uh, yeah, uh, I think it, maybe that's the story. But she's grown up. That's right. That is the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but we don't know. We'll have to go back and look at Grove. Another <laughs> question. Would anybody else like to ask a question? I think we've driven you all into silence. And what you really want to do? Go and get ready for the evening's <laughs> performance. So all it remains for me to do is to thank you all for coming this evening and to thank our guests enormously spending time with us. Uh, that's Richard Osborne, uh, Samantha Price, Andrew Smith and Catherine Wilde. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>